Hey everyone, I'm Masha Udenseva-Brenner, and you're listening to Expert Opinions Russia Eurasia, a Eurasianet.org podcast brought to you by Columbia University's Harriman Institute. In case you missed our previous episode, you should know that we're in the middle of a three-part series on offshore finance, money laundering, and the Trump Organization's real estate deals in the post-Soviet region. In part one of this series, we learned why luxury real estate deals are so susceptible to money laundering operations. Today, we'll go into the details behind an investigation into the Trump Organization's dealings in Georgia. Let's travel back to April 2012. Well, Mr. President, I want to thank you very much. You have had everything to do with us coming to Georgia. You started about four years ago when you called and said, you know, you've done a great job all over the world. We want you to come to Georgia. Then you called again when you were at the United Nations. And again, he doesn't stop. He's worse than me, actually. That's Donald Trump in Georgia standing at a glass podium next to then-Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili. He's thanking Saakashvili for persuading him to put a Trump Tower in the Georgian port city Batumi and praising the leader for the successes he's achieved in his country. I see it's one of the safest places in the world. It's one of the great entrepreneurial places in the world. And so much of it, maybe all of it, so much of it is attributable to you. Trump's using some pretty complimentary words for a president who's actually quite unpopular in Georgia at the time. When he came to power in 2004, Saakashvili was seen as this successful Western-style reformer who was fighting corruption. But within three years' time, 50,000 protesters gathered in Tbilisi accusing him of corrupt practices. He responded by calling snap presidential elections, which was a risky move, but he did win by a tight margin in early 2008, only to quickly lead Georgia into an incredibly unpopular war with Russia and damage any credibility he'd gained. So it's not surprising that with another election on the horizon in 2012, he's doing everything in his power to raise public opinion, including trying to convince the world that he was making Georgia into a foreign investment magnet. Well, he's going to build in Georgia, is that it? Actually, he, he, he licensed and it's a big investment of hundreds of millions of dollars of a big development on our seacoast. And actually, Georgia is a place where you can... You know, Saakashvili is talking to Neil Cavuto of Fox News shortly after signing the Batumi deal back in 2011. The agreement was signed over wine and caviar at the Trump Tower in Manhattan and announced in front of a huge banner that read, Trump invests in Georgia. Saakashvili went on to lose the 2012 election, and by the time Trump won the U.S. presidency in 2016, the Batumi Tower that had been promoted with so much fanfare just a few years before was still nothing but an empty plot of land. Then, shortly before his inauguration in January 2017, Trump suddenly just abandoned the deal altogether. If that sounds kind of strange to you, you're not alone. Today, we'll hear from two recent Columbia School of Journalism grads who spent a whole lot of time digging into documents, news clips, and public records in order to figure out what happened. 
They told New Yorker staff writer Adam Davidson about their findings and convinced him to join the investigation. He went on to publish an article about the deal in August 2017. But we'll hear from Adam in the next episode. For now, let's go behind the scenes and get a sense of what it took to unravel the story behind Trump Batumi. I am a Brazilian journalist. I'm from Rio. I've been a journalist there for about six years uh, before I came here to do a master's program and learn about investigative journalism, and then I did some. That's Manuela Andrioni. She started looking into Trump's Batumi deal in a class called Using Data to Investigate Across Borders, taught by the Costa Rican journalist Janina Sinini. Sinini belongs to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and was part of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Panama Papers project. She knows a lot about investigating across borders using uh, public records and organizing that into data points in order to make sense of it all. And our project was to investigate Trump's business deals around the world. At first, we were like, let's just try this. Manuela says we because she worked on the Batumi deal with a classmate named Inti Pacheco. I'm a journalist. I recently graduated from the journalism school here at Columbia. I had been working before. I worked in Spain and in Costa Rica as a journalist as well. And we started this investigation because of a class. The class commenced last January, just five days after Trump's inauguration. There were about 25 students, and they were tasked with examining the 500-plus companies listed on the Office of Government Ethics form submitted by Trump during his candidacy. Each student got assigned 40 of the LLCs registered and disclosed by Trump in his OGE form. And in those 40, I had Trump marks Batumi. First, I didn't even know what Batumi was. Batumi was on Manuela's list, too. And as they started looking deeper into it, they discovered that it was one of the six deals that Trump pulled out of just days before he became president. They had started talking about this deal in 2011. Like, they signed the licensing agreement in 2011, and this was an ongoing thing for six years, and you just back out now. It looked like something one should look at. They started to read everything they could find about Trump Batumi and the actors involved, and quickly became engrossed in the machinations behind the deal. Meanwhile, most of their classmates were far more intrigued by Trump Tower Soho. Because it had all these shady characters and it was, like, very attractive. Inti and Manuela found that same allure in the Batumi deal. I think the one piece of information that was very telling for us about this deal was a Transparency International uh, article that talked about how the Silk Road Group had other weird relationships with the government. And there's a whole report about how they used offshore companies to win bids in a tender for a water company in Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, and how that was illegal, and how Transparency International has submitted documents to the court, but the court dismisses it. And it's been a story for several years. So we saw that, and we started understanding how complex the structure of this company was, and so we started digging into it. Our basic question when we looked at this and that Janina kept emphasizing to us was, where did the money for the project come from? And who is behind this company? And these are simple questions to ask, not very simple questions to answer. When they started to examine the financing of the deal, 
They encountered a web of offshore and limited liability companies that belonged to a bigger structure composed of several layers. Companies that own companies that own companies. This structure was a holding company called the Silk Road Group, and it was rather difficult to make sense of. Uh, the main company was uh, incorporated in the British Virgin Islands, which is one of the least transparent jurisdictions. And very common presence when someone's trying to hide something. So when Janina asked this, who owns the Silk Road Group? And we were like, well, we think Georgi Ramishvili, who's the chairman, owns the Silk Road Group. And that information is on their website. He's the face of the company and so on and so forth. And he's like, no, but who really owns it? Do you actually have the document that says he's the owner? And I was like, no. <laughs> Sanini kept pushing them to find the document. But the thing about the British Virgin Islands is that you don't have to disclose any of your records to the public. That's why so many people register companies there. Finding the ownership paper seemed like a completely impossible task to Inti and Manuela. But Sanini didn't think so. She told them that if they couldn't find the records online the regular way, then they should comb through the subsidiaries for clues. But there were like a hundred of them. So they turned to an information database called Orbis, which was available to them through the Columbia Journalism School. Orbis is an amazing database that has information about, like, all the companies in the world. After searching for the main holding company, Silk Road Group SA, they were able to gather enough information to connect it to another company incorporated in Georgia. The Caucasian Railway or something. The clue prompted them to search the Georgian Business Registry. Which was in Georgian. Georgian has its own alphabet. It's not like anything else, and it's completely incomprehensible. But thankfully, we had a thing called Google Translator plugin. Uh, and then, so we started exploring the Georgian Business Registry. And it was amazing because they had so many documents there. These company records would have even loan agreements and passports and ID numbers and pictures of the people involved. In the end, we had downloaded like thousands of documents. And the longer they sifted through the documents, the more companies they discovered. Oh, there are companies in Georgia, there are companies in Malta, there are companies in the Netherlands, there's a company in Bahamas, there are more companies in the British Virgin Islands, there are companies in the U.S., there's a company in Canada. And it was like, oh my God, why? And this is a point that Adam writes in this story, which is important when you're looking at this as a reporter. If you look at a structure like this, you have to ask yourself, why does this make financial sense for a company to have this structure? Is there a tax benefit? Is there, is there any reason why this would be financially interesting for a company to have this? And the answer we got from various experts was no. In fact, such a structure would only complicate things. You're dealing with different laws in different jurisdictions, and that makes it harder for you. It's very interesting to try to understand why would someone go through such lengths to hide the ownership of one company. Now's a good time to zoom out and discuss some important context about the Silk Road Group to explain that this sprawling, nonsensical web of a company was intriguing to Inti and Manuela not only because of its structure and the shady activities Inti mentioned earlier, the ones that had been investigated by Transparency International. The Silk Road Group was also intriguing because of its cozy and somewhat mystifying relationship with BTA Bank, a Kazakh national bank internationally known for its ongoing involvement in one of the biggest fraud cases in the world. The BTA Bank, back in 2005, was one of the biggest banks in Kazakhstan. 
That year, Georgia's President Mikhail Saakashvili and Kazakhstan's President Nurulstan Nazarbayev announced that BTA would give Georgia some $300 million in loans for the development of its telecommunications and banking industry, and also for hotel construction in Batumi. Inexplicably, all of these loans went through subsidiaries belonging to the Silk Road Group, which, at the time, specialized in shipping crude and refined oil out of Kazakhstan by rail. So what didn't make sense was to give all this money to a group that had no previous experience in real estate. And they didn't have any experience in banking or telecommunications either. At the time the loans were announced, in 2005... The BTA Bank was led by Mukhtar Abliyasov, who was a very important businessman, an oligarch from Kazakhstan. This Kazakh oligarch was also the founder of an opposition party, so he had a pretty rocky relationship with President Nazarbayev. Likely, it wasn't all that surprising to him when the government made moves to nationalize BTA Bank in 2009. In response, Abliyazov packed up and fled to London, where he asked for political asylum, claiming that the Kazakh government had illegally seized his property. Meanwhile, Kazakh authorities found a $10 billion hole in BTA accounts. And they went after Abliyazov by filing lawsuits against him in various offshore jurisdictions. A few years later, a British court had found that Mukhtar Abliyazov had defrauded BTA banking at least $4.6 billion. Now it's like 4.6 because that's what they can recover. But at first, the number was around $10 billion. And BTA's lawyers were accusing Mr. Abliyazov of laundering this money throughout the world. And what the British courts had found was that Mr. Abliyazov was lending money to companies in which he secretly had interest. In other words, he was using these companies to hide his stolen money. So we were like, it was Silk Road Group, one of these companies. The interesting thing in the Georgia deal with Trump from the beginning was that uh, Mikhail Saakashvili, the president of Georgia back then, was very involved in the deal. It wasn't like the Silk Road group brought Trump to Georgia. It was Saakashvili brought Trump to Georgia. That was how it was presented to the press. One has to remember that in 2008, Georgia was involved in a horrible war with Russia that shattered Saakashvili's reputation a lot, especially because he was trying to make Georgia this Western democracy-looking country. So Donald Trump's theoretical investment in Georgia would be very helpful for him to establish this again, saying, look, Georgia is a Western democracy. It is stable. It's so, it's so stable that this very important businessman from America is coming here and investing a lot of money, $250 million. But as the world learned soon after Trump became president, investing a lot of money in a real estate deal was not at all his modus operandi. We knew that in the majority of its business deals, the Trump Organization was not actually putting money into building properties, but receiving it in exchange for licensing the Trump name to other developers. We also knew that when he signed the licensing agreement, he got money up front. So they did not at all buy the narrative that Trump had invested in Georgia. And there was a lot of talk about the fact that he had not. 
that was something that politicians in Georgia said. This was all a lie. Of course, he didn't invest. And it didn't make sense that he would invest $250 million because first, that it didn't seem like he had $250 million to invest in Georgia, as Tim O'Brien's book revealed. Trump, Trump's not a billionaire. And he didn't do that. But they still didn't have any corroboration that Trump had been paid. Then in April, a couple of months into their investigation, they learned from a confidential source that their hunch was correct. Trump had earned somewhere between $750,000 and $1.5 million for licensing his name for the Batumi Tower. It wasn't proof per se, but it gave them confidence in the fact that Trump had received money. And when there is money changing hands, there are potential problems. It can be very cliche, but it's the most important thing in these cases is uh, where does the money come from? You can say follow the money, but we couldn't follow the money. We, we cannot subpoena people. We cannot see what the payments were. So that's why the approach was who is the owner of the Silk Road? One of the first financial exchanges that takes place in any real estate deal is the land purchase. Sonti and Manuela were pretty eager to find the land title for Trump Batumi. They hoped it would help them to better understand the flow of money in the deal and give them an idea of who was involved, maybe even who the owner of the company was. Unfortunately, the title was not among the thousands of documents they downloaded from the Georgian Business Registry. But they were lucky. The Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project an international consortium for investigative reporting that they'd partnered with, had a base in Georgia and was able to procure the paper for them in May. The land title led Inti and Manuela to a big break in their investigation. One crucial thing they learned from it was that the land purchase made no financial sense. One limited liability company bought the land in 2006, and then in 2012, this limited liability company had sold the land to another limited liability company. And if you follow the chain of ownership of these companies, you ended up in the same people, which were the Silk Road Group owners. In the story that Adam wrote, there's a very funny line where he says, this is a company that owned a company that owned a company that owned a company, and it's no joke. In other words, after peeling away layers and layers of company ownership, Inti and Manuela discovered that the companies on both sides of the land sale for the Trump Batumi project are each owned, at least in part, by the Silk Road Group. As Adam Davidson put it, the Silk Road Group was selling property to itself. So this is a pretty good indication that something fishy is going on, that it's very possible the project was used as a vehicle in some sort of money laundering scheme. And to put the icing on the cake, the land title also led them to discover that one of the companies involved had received a loan from BTA Bank. This meant that BTA money, money that had been lent to the Silk Road Group at the same time that Mukhtar Abliyazov was laundering money in shell companies all over the world, was very near to the Trump deal. All this new information was certainly important and intriguing but it still brought Inti and Manuela no closer to finding the owner of the company. So they continued sifting through the documents they'd downloaded from the Georgian Business Registry, 
Thousands of documents, each one a grainy PDF containing dozens of pages. They used optimal character recognition software to convert each document to text, then pasted the text page by page into Google Translate and scoured the often nonsensical automatic translations for meaning. We spend a lot of time reading pages and pages of Georgian, trying to translate it and reaching out to people like, does this say what I think it says? Sometimes I would work eight or ten hours a day with Manuela at the office, and then we would each go home and keep reading stuff about this because we felt we didn't do enough during the day. Sometimes we're a bit lost about, like, what does it all mean? And it's very exhausting. But... They never even considered giving up the search because they were so sure that eventually they'd find something, that at the end, there'd be a story to tell. Then, sometime around June, by which point they had already graduated from Columbia's journalism school and moved on to become investigative fellows there, Inti and Manuela were looking through a batch of documents, the public filings of yet another Silk Road subsidiary. It was a company called Neptuni that appeared to own a gym or a sports complex when they noticed a bunch of pages in English scattered throughout the 40-page Georgian language file. In the public filings for that company that owns that gym or that sports complex, there was the ownership structure and the names and the passwords and everything of the real owners of Silk Road Group in the British Virgin Islands. He was just like there and it was like, oh my God, there it is. <laughs> Tinti and Manuela's great surprise all this secrecy and the seeming efforts to hide the Silk Road Group's ownership led them back to the very same people who were the public faces on the Silk Road Group's website. That confused us a lot because we had always thought that Georgi Ramishvili, who was presented as the face of Silk Road Group, was maybe just at the face of it and maybe was doing the work for someone else. So when we found out that in this British Virgin Island company, he was still the owner, we were very surprised to hear that. Finding the ownership documents did not erase their questions about ownership and control, because there were still too many loose ends. News reports from 2005 to 2010 sometimes called the Silk Road Group a Kazakh company. And experts they interviewed told them it was still possible for people to have a stake in a company, even if they weren't listed in the ownership paperwork. If someone owns a company on paper, it doesn't necessarily mean that those are the only people who own a company. Public records can only take you so far. You're never going to be able to figure out who owns it unless you see the person holding the paper. This brings us back to BTA Bank, that Kazakh bank you heard about earlier that's currently involved in the mother of all fraud scandals, the one whose money the oligarch Mukhtar Ablyazov ran off with and laundered all over the world. See, not only did BTA loan all that money to the Silk Road Group, there was also an even closer connection between them. In 2005, the same year that BTA announced that huge loan to Georgia, the Silk Road Group and BTA actually opened a joint bank there, and they called it BTA Silk Road Bank. What was interesting was that the ownership of the bank, which was then called the BTA Silk Road for a period of time, 49% belonged to the BTA Bank in Kazakhstan. 
24% belong to the Silk Road Group. And 27% belong to two companies with funny names. One company was based in Austria, and one company was based in the UK. And the UK courts had found those were two of the companies that Abliasov was using to launder money. This Kazakh bank, the one that was defrauded, held half of the shares in the Silk Road Bank. So basically a bank that someone was funneling money off of this bank had a partnership with the Silk Road Group. So here they had it, a direct connection between the Silk Road Group and Abliazov's laundered money. Meanwhile, in order to get a clearer picture of what was happening, Inti and Manuela were compiling timelines for the Silk Road Group, BTA Bank, the jointly owned bank in Georgia, and Mukhtar Abliazov. We just started looking at everything that happened, news reports, uh, using things like Factiva to basically just type in BTA Bank and do a search from 2005 when they opened the branch in Georgia, which is the same time when Mukhtar Abliazov becomes the chairman of the bank in Kazakhstan, and then up until 2009 when Mukhtar Blyasov flees uh, Kazakhstan and goes to the UK because the auditors of the BTA bank in Kazakhstan find a $10 billion hole in their accounts. As they compiled these timelines, Inti also watched a whole lot of news footage about the Batumi deal. For some reason, in Georgia, people upload news clips from TV to YouTube every day. So I was able to find the clips from three or four different channels that covered the trip that Trump made to Georgia and the trip that the Silk Road Group with Saakashvili made to New York to sign the deal in 2011. This, this is all recorded. This is all online. You just type in Trump Saakashvili on YouTube and you get more than 50, maybe 100 videos. And then... There was this guy there in the videos, and it was like, who's this guy? <laughs> Why is he always there? In all these videos concerning the Batumi deal, there was always another man present, a man they couldn't identify. Initially, they didn't pay much attention to him, but when they went back and looked at the videos again, right around the time they found the ownership paperwork buried in the Neptuni file, they recognized his face from the timelines they'd created. The mysterious presence was a man named Yurkin Tatishev. There's a press release on the BTA of Kazakhstan website that says that Yerkin Tatishev traveled to Georgia to open the branch of BTA Bank. So that's the first time we see his name. Tatishev had been first deputy chairman at BTA Bank during Abliazov's chairmanship. But he wasn't included in the lawsuit filed against Abliazov in the UK. He did, however, leave BTA Bank in 2009, the same year Abliazov fled Kazakhstan and the bank was nationalized by the Kazakh government. Currently, he runs a company called the Kusto Group based in Singapore, which boasts on their website that they've been an outstanding partner for the Silk Road Group since 2006 and have successfully invested in various sectors of the Georgian economy together. There's a photo of a beaming Georgi Ramashvili, that's the official Silk Road Group owner, featured on the partners page, with a quote next to it saying that Kusto was one of the first major investors to spot opportunities in Georgia. 
this person that Tishev is never mentioned, but but you see him in the periphery every time that you look at something like pictures or videos or records or investments in this company. So it did seem like he was playing a very important role in the background. One of the other persons that is very present in all these videos is a woman named uh, Vera Kovalia. She was the Minister of Economy back then when the deal was signed. She came to New York with the Silk Road Group and the president, Takashvili, and she was there also in all the presentations in Batumi and in Bilsi. So she now works for another company. She's not living in Georgia anymore. I believe she's in Indonesia, but she has a presentation online. And she has like a summary of everything that she's achieved and why she's good at what she does. And uh, there's one picture. She has one picture where it's her, Georgi Ramishvili, the head of the Silk Road Group, Trump, and Yerkin Tatishev. No one else. There's a video of Trump walking into the presidential palace in Georgia with Tatishev right behind him. And it's not like it's a crowd of 10 people. It's a translator, it's Saakashvili, it's Georgi Ramishvili, the guy from the Silk Road Group, it's Trump, it's Michael Cohen, and this guy, Jerkin Tatishev. Then there's another video where Trump gives a short speech and he says, ah, we have a developer, and then corrects himself and says, we have two developers, two great developers, and points at Ramishvili, Georgi from Silk Road Group, and Yerkin Tatishev, this guy from BTA Bank. He points at uh, the place where Georgi Ramishvili, the chairman of the Silk Road Group, and Tatishev are sitting, they were sitting next to each other. He points at them and said, my partners. Of course, this alone doesn't prove anything. But at the same time, there were all these other signs. This wasn't like we were only based on this. He was always there. He was the former first deputy of this bank that lent them a lot of money. And he had a, actually had a company with the Silk Road Group that was about energy. We had this question, is this guy in any way related to this project? The thing is, as you've already seen, the Silk Road Group is comprised of nearly 100 companies in different jurisdictions. And a lot of these companies aren't obligated by law to disclose their owner. They are sometimes only have to disclose a nominee and a director. It could well be that Mr. Tatishev owns some on one of these companies, and we wouldn't know because this is not publicly available information. So Dintin Manuela kept piling on the evidence, finding a suspicious loan of tens of millions of dollars from the BTA bank to a Silk Road subsidiary with barely 10 million in assets discovering that a former Silk Road Group board member had ties to Abliazov, and, of course, establishing a link between Silk Road Group companies and Abliazov's laundered money. They had a lot of convincing evidence from their investigation, but what they didn't have was a way to tie it all together. They needed a seasoned reporter to take them to the next step. Luckily, they had just the reporter in mind. That semester, New Yorker staff writer Adam Davidson had come to speak to their class about his investigation into a Trump business deal in Azerbaijan, and he seemed open to examining more deals in the region. He was very interested because he had done the Baku deal, and he had always been asking questions about Georgia, and then we showed him everything we had, and we started doing reporting together. 
that was exactly what we needed to join our research that we had done in isolation and put it together with his expertise. And I think uh, it was a really good partnership because he contributed a lot to making this in, into a story. He gave us access to things that we would have never gotten access to. We had made several interviews before starting the reporting with Adam, but when Adam came in, he had the name New Yorker attached to him. So everyone would very quickly reply and answer his questions. And these responses helped tremendously. Finally, they were able to confirm all these conjectures. We were able to talk to the Silk Road group itself, to at least send questions to people like the T-Chef, and to talk to other people. After we had a really good idea about what this company was doing, we had their loan agreements, we had their corporate structure, we had legal cases, and after we partnered with Adam Davidson and then started doing interviews uh, with the Silk Road group people and other people who were involved, we're like, yeah, that's exactly what was going on. They accompanied Davidson to interview Georgie Schilatze, a co-owner of the Silk Road Transatlantic Alliance who brokered the Trump deal. When we went to talk to Silk Road Group, we had a lot of documents and we had a lot of specific questions and we knew a lot about their their corporate structure. When we would ask questions, we would we would show the document with that just saying this is not just something that we guess. This is actually written here and that's what we need you to explain. And it was very interesting to have them explain to us why this corporate structure. And they didn't come up with a good answer for that, an answer that our specialists found satisfying. The more interviews they conducted, the less credible the company's justifications seemed. For instance, they were told that Yurkin Tatishev was merely a friend of the Silk Road group who wanted to meet Trump. But then, why was he always there during all the meetings? And why is it that when Davidson acquired a cachet of internal Silk Road Group emails dating back to 2014, that he found Tatishev being informed about sensitive internal financial matters by top executives? These things just didn't add up. I think when journalists investigate this sort of business with this kind of veil of secrecy, it's very important to actually know that you have done your research, that you have looked at all the public records because it's very easy for someone to brush off and say, no, this, there's nothing there, you shouldn't, you shouldn't look at that. <laughs> and, you know, when it's so complicated, it took us months, when it's so complicated to actually find if there's something there, it's easy to go like, oh, well, but there's nothing there. But when you, when you do your public record research, you will know if there's nothing there or not. I won't get into the details of everything they were able to confirm, or even the implications of these findings, because you should read the article on the New Yorker website. It's called Trump's Business of Corruption. You should also read the official Silk Road Group response, published in October by Georgie Ramashvili on silkroadgroup.net. Ramashvili denies the allegations against his company, claiming that, quote, the New Yorker article's attack on SRG is entirely based on speculation, circumstance, and innuendos, and conveniently disregards facts and context that do not fit into its chosen narrative, end quote. You'll weigh the information and make up your own minds about what to believe, but 
I wanted to tell this story to give you an idea of what it takes to investigate something like this, because we rarely get to see behind the scenes of investigative work. Of course, I'm happy to say that the Harriman Institute played its own small part, because Inti and Manuela got some insight from our director, Alexander Cooley, whom you heard from in the last episode. We all have read Dictators Without Borders, and we asked him, what is, what is Kazakhstan's government like, and what are the business like, and what does this BCA case, this fraud money laundering case, mean? We've talked to him more than a couple of times. He's been incredibly helpful. We've also talked to people from Transparency International in Georgia. We actually got a lot of help from people in the OCCRP. They have a branch in Georgia, and they were incredibly helpful. In general, both Inti and Manuela stress that collaboration, talking to regional experts and partnering with other organizations along the way, was pretty key to the project's success. How how are you going to get sources in Georgia when you can't can't even go there? And this is the problem with reporting about Trump's business deals around the world. How are you going to get some inside scoop about the company in India, like who's going to tell you what's going on? Because you've never been to India. The other key thing, of course, was working with the New Yorker. The fact-checking process of the New Yorker is incredibly thorough. I was amazed by how good it is. It has to be very on point. Every line had an annotation in each one of those drafts, and Every fact is, like, every fact. (laughs) If we say that day was rainy, they'll go check the weather. It's very important that everything can be corroborated some way or another. This story had the best home possible, and we hope that it contributes to provide some accountability about Trump's businesses and about businesses around the world and what we're missing and what this offshore world allows people to do when they might have bad intentions. Thanks for listening to Expert Opinions, the Harriman Institute's podcast on Eurasianet. Be sure to stay tuned for the next episode, where I'll be talking to New Yorker staff writer Adam Davidson about his reporting on Trump's business deals in the former Soviet region. I'm Masha Udensova-Brenner. This episode was written and produced by me with audio editing and production assistance from Sarah Bellingham. I'd also like to extend a huge thanks to Maria Mamina and Nathan Schiller for their editorial guidance. We'd love to hear your feedback. Please review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to me on Twitter at Masha U. Brenner. <laughs>